Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Dr. Olinka Trejo is back with us today, and this is going to be a good one, a fun one, an interesting one, all of the above. Listen, there are so many mixed messages out there, not only when it comes to weight loss, but health and wellness in general, and they're changing always. So Dr. Olinka is here. She's going to set us straight. She's going to bust some common health myths and explain some of those myths, mistruths that are out there. That's a mouthful. (laughs) Yeah. Hi. Hi. It's so nice to be here. Good morning, everyone. <laughs> Always nice to see you. Okay. Let, I mean, some of these go back pretty far. Like even those like drink eight to 10 glasses of water, like no one can really, no one knows where that came from. There's so many things out there that are quote unquote common knowledge yeah. that we don't know the source of and are just straight up not, in, not even true. Um, you give me a list. Should I just go through the list? Yeah, you can, yeah. like, we can play it by ear. Just go, if you think of another one that you want to debunk, like, we can go through those two. Okay. Um, let's start with you should limit your sodium. Okay, so this one is like a half truth ish, but for different reasons than people think. Um, yes, you should limit your sodium, but the the vast majority of people think of sodium for high blood pressure, right? And for cardiovascular yes. disease. Mm-hmm. The truth is that only about 30% of people are impacted by sodium um, as like a cardiovascular risk factor, only 30% of people. It's only a third of us that when we consume sodium, our blood pressure goes up and then it can impact your arteries and put you or increase your risk of heart attack and stroke, right? The, the thing for me about sodium is not just for cardiovascular risk, but it's actually for osteoporosis. And people don't talk about this, but increasing your sodium also means that your kidney is working harder at, at, um, at excreting your calcium, right? And so that actually means that your body has to chew up some of your bone in order to cope with that uh, sodium. And so high sodium increases calcium excretion, increases your risk for osteoporosis. Okay, drop the mic. This conversation's done. And- <laughs> And so, yeah, okay. you should live at your sodium, but it's not just for your heart health. I mean, for me, that's like the cherry on top, but it truly is for bone health that I get all of my patients to reduce their sodium intake. Okay. So I do have to talk about this because people listening, the majority of them in the maintenance group where we're on right mm-hmm. now have go- come off the Livy method and low sodium tends to be an issue, especially when people, for lack of a better word, clean up their diet because sure. they're no longer getting or eating those processed foods that tend to be a lot higher in salt. They've heard that salt is so bad for you. So I'm going to be healthy and eliminate all my salt. So you do need some salt. What like, you do. I mean, our bodies need about 500 milligrams of salt. Most of us consume about 35 to 4,000. And so this is where 
the okay. you know heart association for example says like 2000 milligrams is like a sweet spot i would say that if you were to like eat all of your fruits and vegetables and you know not um not eat anything out of a package that means that you probably don't want to be consuming more more than about a teaspoon of salt in a day okay mm-hmm. okay that's a good guess or, at, or good have at least at least amount at least a teaspoon a day does it go both at least ways? a teaspoon a day yeah yeah, yeah. for sure Okay. Cause that's like, all right. The next one. Oh, I love this one. Yeah. Go, go. Sorry. I'm already on to the next eggs. Eggs got such a bad rap back in the air. It was it early, early. I'm trying to say. (laughs) I think it was the eighties. Yeah. I think it's like the eighties and the nineties. Yeah. Absolutely. The nineties. Yeah. Eggs are bad for your cholesterol. Let's talk about that. Okay. So I, I want people to understand the fact that most of your cholesterol is actually made by your body right? It's not actually something that you're eating. And the cholesterol that your body is making is mostly from saturated and trans fats. And so even though eggs have a little bit of cholesterol, in the grand scheme of things, it's not going to impact your cholesterol levels massively in the way that people think that it is. Now, there was a, there, there was a really, really, really big study done a, a few years ago that showed that if you're at increased risk of cardiovascular disease, so that means that you already have high blood pressure, you already have really, really high cholesterol, you have diabetes, you're morbidly obese. I mean, hopefully, you know, we've kind of uh, addressed all of that because we've been part of the gene living method. But if you have that, if you have that increased risk, you can safely consume up to one egg every day without having any change in your cardiovascular risk factors. I know. And so for people that don't have that, the studies also also show that your sweet spot is about 12-ish eggs in a week, and you won't see absolutely any change in your cholesterol levels. I mean, genetics obviously plays a role. There's so many things that play a role, but we're talking about our maintenance group, right? We're talking about people who have already cleaned up their act, um, and we're not having a lot of that saturated and trans fat, hopefully. And so you don't have to be afraid of eggs. Eggs are amazing. They're amazing. So many people are afraid of eggs. Isn't that really what we're dealing with here? Sort of extremes when it comes to these yeah. types of things. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's yeah, it's all or nothing. And you know, and I, I, I really wish that people weren't as afraid of eggs because there's um in medicine we actually measure everything like the perfection of a protein. We measure it up against an egg because the egg is the most perfect protein, and it's got such incredible nutrients like choline and biotin and like a bunch of things that are really hard to find elsewhere. And so I, you know, I have pediatrician friends that uh, I've talked to about really picky eaters. And they always say to me, as long as the kid is eating eggs, we're good. Good. Amazing. Okay. This one, soy is bad for your hormones. I think this also came out of the eighties, didn't it? Uh, Yeah, probably. Soy is bad for your hormones. And I think that it's also been a myth that's been perpetuated a lot um, in the health industry where we started talking about like estrogen dominance, Mm -hmm. um, which isn't really a term in medicine. And so I'm going to take us back to the fact that soy has a high concentration of isoflavones, which act like these, um, we call them phytoestrogens, but they have a very weak estrogenic impact and they bind to estrogen receptors, right? And I think that the misinformation came also from very confusing data that like some of it showed that it was really great. Some of it was like, we don't really, really know. And a lot of these studies really um, 
I think that the problem was not just the design, but also the population that we were studying things in, right? And so what we now know is that for premenopausal women, so women who are still producing their own estrogen, what can happen with phytoestrogens or soy is that that weak plant estrogen will bind to the receptors and will have a very weak estrogenic effect in the sense that then it will lessen the estrogenic load of that woman's um I guess, uh, uh, hormonal state, but that also means that that woman has to be excreting her own estrogens in an effective way, right? So that means that we need to be pooping well, we need to be like eating well, we, we need to be living, um, uh, loving our livers and giving our liver all the support that it needs to metabolize all of those estrogens. If you are metabolizing your own estrogen, soy is amazing because soy is going to bind to those receptors because it's competing with your own estrogen and you are going to have a little bit of like a, a, a less estrogenic effect, which is great. Now, when you've lost all of your estrogen because you're postmenopausal, you have no estrogen left over. And so that weak estrogen is going to bind to that receptor and you get a tiny bit of estrogen, which if anybody here has gone through menopause, um, they know that it is something that we welcome. Right. Because we also have data that shows that it can be really uh, favorable for hot flashes that decreasing the frequency and then the intensity, night sweats. It's a great protein source. Um, the tricky thing is that soy is also the most genetically modified food. And so you have to be really yeah. careful with the type of soy that you're consuming. But from a, is soy bad for you? It is not. We also, you know, we have, and I think that this is my favorite conversation um, to have with women because they will come into my office. I, I primarily focus on hormones and they will come into my office and be like, oh God, I can't have soy. It's like bad for me. It causes cancer. And the data actually shows that populations that have higher intakes of soy during their lifetime have a four to six fold um, uh, a four to six low times lower uh, uh, incidence of breast cancer, endometrial cancer, and endometriosis. And we also have studies that actually show that um, people that consume soy as breast cancer survivors, even if they've had estrogen-dependent cancers, have uh, lower mortality rates and lower risk of recurrence. And so soy is great. It's just make sure that you're getting a good quality soy. It's it's this is so fascinating and maddening at the same time because it comes okay. down to clickbait for a lot of people. You read mm. one mm. post and soy is causes cancer and it messes with your hormones, then you read the next post and it's so good for you. Eat it and you'll live longer. When this is where we're like the actual and this is know. what I mean by extremes, you know. Um, I love this conversation. And I, I do agree with you. Um, when it comes to soy, look for organic or I do love organic because organic is just held to higher standards or non-GMO when it comes to soy For specifically. Sure. Okay. Absolutely. Um, oh, this one, vegetables. Okay. We have a variety of different topics. Uh, cruciferous vegetables are bad for your thyroid. You've heard this one before. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so there, um, honestly, there isn't uh, a lot of data because I think that um, uh, the amount of vegetables that you would have to consume would be astronomical in order for it to impact your thyroid. And also, um, it would have to be in a setting of low iodine and low, low selenium, right? And this actually comes from the, the uh, uh, thought, not necessarily the thought, but the, the, the cruciferous vegetables have goitrogenic properties, which means that they can block how your thyroid absorbs iodine and then produces thyroid hormone. 
And the problem with that is that then again, we extrapolated that and we said like, oh, then cruciferous vegetables must be really, really bad for thyroid. The truth is that the, the small research studies that we have available show that you can consume up to about like eight ounces of cruciferous vegetables every day. There was one study that actually said specifically five ounces of uh, Brussels sprouts, which have the highest concentration of these goitrogenic properties every day. And it will have zero impact on your thyroid hormone. Now, if you're worried about, um, you know, the, the amount of cruciferous vegetables you're consuming because you love, you know, broccoli and cauliflower and Brussels sprouts, and you know that they're amazing and you have thyroid concerns, cooking these uh, vegetables will decrease the goitrogenic properties by about two thirds. And so again, it's the, you know, the not extremes that like, you know, you're also not sitting down and having like 18 cups of cruciferous vegetables every day. Yeah. And if you were to, because you love them, just cook them, add a little bit of iodine, make sure that you're eating those Brazilians for selenium. You'll be fine. Which brings us to the next point, which is raw vegetables are better than cooked ones. I know this is the one that I hear all the time. Um, so no, that's actually, honestly, that's a hard no. There are, um, for sure, cooking will compromise some uh, nutrients, right? Especially things that are water soluble, like vitamin C or some of the bees or things like that. But some of the, the cooking processes actually make some um, uh, antioxidants that are actually really hard to get more bioavailable, which means that it's easier for your body to absorb them. The biggest examples that I can think of are, for example, lycopene. Lycopene is something that a lot of people have heard about uh, because it's in tomatoes and it's really great for prostate health. Um, it also lowers um, the risk of cancer and heart attacks, especially in males. But it can't be accessed unless tomatoes, for example, are cooked. You can't really access that in raw tomatoes. Beta carotene is another one. Beta carotene is something that your body uses to convert uh, or to, to produce vitamin A. And vitamin A is really important for your immune function, it's really important for your eyesight, it's really important for bone growth. But your carrots, for example, which is what everybody thinks about with vitamin A, your carrots, if you cook them, um, you can actually absorb about three times more the beta carotene um, content than with raw carrots. Nice. And then there's speaking of like cruciferous, there's cruciferous family vegetables have something that's called indole, which is um, very uncommon everywhere else in the uh, food world, I should say, or the natural world. And indole is this uh, compound or this antioxidant that helps kill precancer cells before they turn malignant. And unless you cook your brassicas, you actually can't get the indole. And so I always tell my patients, you know, I, I would love for you to have beautiful salads and have lots of vegetables, but have variety and make sure that you're cooking some, you're having some raw because they have different properties and you can't access them all. Even though we think, you know, in the natural form, there must be better. It's not always the case. Love it. Okay. Mix it up. And also, you know, for people who are finding that raw vegetables are harder to digest, cooking is a, as, is a good way to go. Oh, yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, honestly, like, I think ultimately, the point that we're trying to make is eat your veggies. It doesn't really matter how you eat them, but eat your <laughs> veggies. And I honestly, I think that for some people who are, uh, I mean, this is a maintenance group. So I understand we're having a different conversation for you guys. But for some people who didn't grow up eating or, and loving vegetables, right, sometimes cooking vegetables or putting them to soups or like roasting them, or adding some spices to them, just makes them a little bit more attractive and more palatable to start with. Um, and so just as long as you can eat them. 
What about uh, fresh versus frozen? I so you know I um I had to do a little bit of research on this one because I um in medicine we we were always taught that uh, frozen was like not no bueno for so many reasons and the challenge is that you know the the research that we have also talks about like the shelf life that vegetables have once they've been freshly cut if like you cut them in your backyard and then put them into your fridge right and so if we're eating fresh vegetables that have been cut that day and you're preparing them that day, then arguably maybe you, um, the fresh vegetables would be um, higher in antioxidants and vitamins and things like that. However, in 2023, um, I was going to say 2024, I'm already ahead, 2023 in like, you know, in a Western civilized world, like most of the stuff that you're getting has been cut maybe like a week, but sometimes even weeks ahead of time, right? And so in the process, um, it's actually lost a lot of their antioxidants. And then it's sitting on the shelf for God knows how long. And then it sits in your fridge for like three days because you were meant to like make that broccoli soup, but then you forgot about the broccoli. And now it's like seven days after. And so I um, I think that I, I'm, I'm going to make the point of like fresh vegetables as like we see them versus like fresh vegetables that like you're like growing your garden and eating that day. And so if we're making, if we're making the argument of fresh vegetables, as we see them in the grocery store versus frozen there, there is a case actually for frozen vegetables because frozen vegetables get like flash frozen the second that they get like, uh, almost like cut and prepared. And so you almost freeze them in time versus the other ones. They still are, you know, transported into your fridge. And so the data actually shows that some um, some properties like vitamin C, for example, can decrease by about 50% in frozen vegetables. But if you take kale, for example, um, uh, fresh uncooked kale that has been frozen has about twice the antioxidant as the, the raw kale that's been sitting in your fridge for a couple of days. Oh. Frozen broccoli has more riboflavin than um, fresh broccoli, but the opposite is for peas. And so it's it's kind of like it depends on the vegetable, it depends on the things. But I I want you guys to not turn your nose up to frozen vegetables in the way that I had for ten years of my life. Um, and just embrace it because it's a way to get more nutrients, right? And sometimes the truth of the matter is they can be so much more affordable for people. Yes, yes. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. 
Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Um, okay, good news. How about you can't overdose on vitamins? They're just vitamins. Eh, you can't overdose. You've heard this one before too. Uh, oh, you absolutely can overdose on vitamins. I think that uh, I can't, I think that the last time that we were together, we were chatting about immune health and vitamin C and why I don't love super high doses of vitamin C. Um, it, the thing, I mean, most people think, especially water soluble vitamins, right? Like B vitamin, vitamin C. They're like, oh, I'll just pee it out if I like have too much. But that's not actually true. Like for vitamin C, it can, uh, you know, it can give you really bad diarrhea. It can cause kidney stones. Vitamin B6, for example, can give you neuropathy. It can actually give you like uh, tingling, like hands and and, uh, feet. Um, And I've actually seen that in practice. I've seen people that have overdosed in B6 and they come in being like, I think I have a mess. And we go through all of these studies. We go through MRIs. We do all of these things. And then we go through their vitamins and I'm like, oh, no, no, you are just having like a thousand times more vitamin B6 than you should have. And you've had that for the last two years because you thought that it was going to fix your periods and you just have a B6 toxicity. That's what's Mm. actually happening. And so, and then, so that's for water soluble, fat soluble, fat soluble vitamins are a little bit easier to overdose on because your body doesn't excrete them in your urine, right? Which is actually water soluble means just that like you have them. And then if you have too much, then too much, then your kidney will filter through them. The fat soluble vitamins. So that's going to be vitamin A, vitamin D, uh, vitamin E, vitamin K, your fat stores them. And so if you have too much, you can cause toxicity. And unfortunately it can lead to organ damage. Yeah, I was just going to say, it can be really hard on your organs. It can, especially for people that have at kidney issues, you have to be super, super, super careful, right? Because even at small doses, things can become very toxic very quickly. And so I, um, you know, I, I think that for the vast majority of us, if you go to a health food store and they recommend something and you're like, oh, God, I should, I don't know if I should be taking this. It's not a big deal. But when you have other chronic diseases, you have to be really careful. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there is that minimum, that recommended dose, right? And for your okay. basics, your vitamin D, your omega-3, you know, we, I think what we, that the issues we hear a lot more about, um, increasing your dose on vitamin D, but that's, if you've gone, you've gotten tested like I have, my body does not, doesn't store it well at all. So I have to do higher doses, but I've been told that, right. There's yeah. like, I've done a blood test that tells me that omega-3, there is some research on increasing the dose in terms of some specific health issues. But again, those are specific health issues. Not like everyone is going to benefit from, you know, tripling their dose of omega-3 at the end of the day. Um, So I think this is where, you know, that nuance of seeking out a naturopathic doctor, speaking to your doctor, speaking to your pharmacist, um, someone who maybe knows your health history and knows other medications you're taking, issues that you're having and, you know, could, could speak on the dose that is, is right for you at the end of the day. 1000%. Okay. Um, cause people just take anything and everything, the whole Dr. Oz era, right? This, this week is that next week is that just down the whole bottle. You'll be fine. You'll cure this. Look through that. Okay. Uh, coconut is a heart healthy cooking oil. Oh, um, I know I'm going to get crucified for this one for sure. Um, yeah, you know, I'm like, what, 
What are you going to say what? here? What are you going to say? Okay. So again, I, you have to know that co- coconut is amazing for so many reasons. And the research that we have with for coconut and where like a lot of the coconut is amazing came from was actually from um, studies that were done with coconut oil that were primarily MCT oil, which I know that Dr. Yeah. Paul has talked about a lot. Yeah. The coconut oil that you and I buy as regular folk buy at the grocery store is not primarily MCT oil. It is 90%, 90% of it is actually the saturated fat that clogs your arteries. And, uh, you know, it uh, makes your liver produce more of the bad cholesterol. And so the problem is that the coconut oil that you and I have access to that we're cooking with, um, raises that LDL or bad cholesterol and increases the risk of cardiovascular disease. Now, then I know that I'm going to get the like, oh, you know, but populations that use a lot of coconut products tend to have lower risk of cardiovascular disease. That isn't untrue. And I honestly, I've said this before, I, I know it's coming. Um, but the thing is, is that those populations also have diets that are higher in fiber. They yes. also have different types of coconut that we have. They use like, a, you know, the way that they make their coconut oil and their coconut cream is different than the way that we process things. And so from a cardiovascular... And a lot less like, processed foods. Oh, they're not eating the same kind of diet that we... Yes. It's all... But, but when it comes to like saturated fat and a heart disease, um, coconut oil... And if you talk to a lot of cardiologists, um, coconut oil might be less favorable than butter. And bo- butter is not good. Like it's honestly, it's like tit for tat for them because it, any fat that's solid at room temperature like that, that's actually what's going to happen to your arteries. That's actually has been explained to me. And I'm like, oh, that makes sense. That's actually why marbled meat, for example, you know how they has that, like that white fat or like bacon or butter, like that type of fat, which is the same as coconut oil, right? Like that's actually what happens to your arteries. And so in coconut, like, Coconut oil also is high in vitamin E, you guys. I know that. Coconut oil is also really high in lerucidin and like all of these amazing things. But when it comes to cardiovascular disease, coconut oil is like the vegetarian butter. It is not good for your arteries. Butter and uh, coconut oil, they have a strong marketing team, man. Butter and coconut oil, (laughs) they have a strong marketing team behind them. Um, I think the confusion of coconut oil also comes from it's a higher smoke point so it is Mm -hmm. coconut oil is good to deep fry in if you're going to deep fry something coconut oil changes its chemical makeup the least or maintains its properties the most so it can be beneficial to deep fry your chicken wings or whatever you're going to deep fry in coconut oil however consuming deep fried anything on a regular basis, it's not great for our cholesterol. And coconut oil as a standalone teaspoon of coconut oil is not ideal for most people. Like this is why your good olive oils are are still liquid at room temp, right? Like if it, it turns into if it turns into a glob mess, it's probably globbing messing up your arteries. It's exactly <laughs> it. And you know, and We're I really think scientific here at weight loss by Gina. Yeah. <laughs> But I mean, ultimately, you know, I, I, cause I get asked this question all the time in practice and I say avocado oil is better for light frying, but to be honest, like we probably shouldn't be like deep frying anything. Um, yeah. and, and I, I do, I go always go back to the, these are, uh, very polarizing statements. I get that. Like, yes. you know, yeah. one teaspoon of 
coconut oil is not going to clog your arteries, but it pro- it shouldn't be your primary source of cooking oil. Okay. So because we spent all of our time on coconut oil, yeah, <laughs> that's a good one. Uh, I'm going to rapid fire through in the, the sake of time, these ones, because I, I think they're all really important, especially the nightshade one. Oh, my Lord. Uh, nightshades. I just, I can't with that whole thing. But anyway, um, let's go into, you should feed a cold, starve a fever. False. Um, both fevers and colds, the most important thing for them is hydration, for sure. This comes from a theory from the 1500s that because you were cold inside and if you ate and, you know, it increased your metabolism, it was better for you. Honestly, there's absolutely no research behind that. Um, in the sake of time, I will just say you just eat whatever you can, especially because your uh, immune system will need the nutrition and drink as much as you can, because that is the most important thing. That one runs deep with a lot of people's beliefs. I, I know. Cracking your joints will cause arthritis. Always cracking your joints? Yeah, I'm cracking my fingers. Okay, well, the pop, I, the good news is that it won't. Um, the pop is actually by bursting these little bubbles in the fluid that actually lubricates the joint. Um, and so when the bubbles pop, whenever you move the bones apart, you know, that's where the cracking comes from. However, you have to be really careful because you can really injure, injure the tendons and the ligaments that are around it. And even though it doesn't cause arthritis, there is research that shows that uh, habitual crackers actually have worse grip strength as like they age because it actually, I know. That's me. That's what's huh? happening to me. I have no strength. Tony's always making fun of me. I can't open anything. And I was a big, like, I was a big cracker. I haven't done it in a while. So now I'm actually feeling yeah. it. Yeah. Now you're going to crack no more. <laughs> Smokes. Okay. A little bit cracking your own, just cracking. No. Okay. <laughs> sea salt better than table salt. Oh, I love this one. Okay. So I know. I'm, not, like, I'm trying to make it fast, fast, fast. So the main difference between all of these salts is going to be taste, is going to be texture, and it's going to be processing, right? So table salt comes from mines, which means that a lot of the times they have to add things so that it doesn't clump. Obviously, sea salt will come from evaporated, like sea water that's minimally processed. So it will taste a lot of those, yeah, those trace minerals, which is like amazing and ideal. But what you want to remember is that the most important thing about salt, other than the flavor that you're looking for, is the iodine. Because that's what's most important for your thyroid. And we don't live in a culture that has a lot of iodine in other ways, right? Because we don't have a lot of seaweeds and a lot of oysters and a lot of other things. And so whatever salt you choose, just make sure that it has iodine. There is, I mean, table salt is iodized, but there there is, you know, Himalayan sea salt, Himalayan salt, sorry, there's sea salt, there's Celtic salt that has iodine. Just make sure that you read the label. Neither of them is better than the other one. Just make sure that it has iodine because that is the best out of all of them. Okay, let's get to this nightshade one because people are always like, oh, I'm thinking we're having nightshade. Who's this? What's his name? Gundry or who? who's someone's big on this one? I it's yeah, it's Gundry. Yeah, I'm a, uh, he talks a lot about lectins. Yeah, I know that guy. It, there's lectins and everything. I, I, I know that you can't eat anything if you can't eat lectins. Okay, okay. so nightshades, are antioxidant powerhouses. You have to know that like nightshades are incredible. If you think about all the nightshades, they're all colorful, right? And they're deep colors. They're like deep reds, deep oranges, deep purples. And so as an antioxidant, they are incredible. 
The problem that in like where all of this came from is that they have a compound that's called alkaloids and alkaloids at extremely high doses can be very dangerous. So we're talking about extremely high doses, like more than a hundred pounds in one sitting, extremely high doses, right? I've never known anybody that eats that much like tomato in one sitting, but I'm here for it. If you know anybody, like I'm all here. And so to date, there have been absolutely no large scale studies that suggest that nightshades cause inflammation in healthy people. There have been, I think that I can count two studies and they've been very, very small in animals that show that um, some nightshades, and I think it was potatoes actually in mice can worsen inflammatory bowel disease if they already have it. Um, but there have been no studies in humans. Now I have plenty of patients, some of who are watching this today, that will say that, you know, I know when I eat nightshades, my arthritis flares up. And I'm like, amazing, then don't eat them. But uh, for the general population, I always say, you know, there's absolutely no reason to fear them. If you think that they're causing some inflammation, maybe take them out for, I don't know, two weeks and see if you feel better and then slowly reintroduce them. If you feel better, amazing. If you don't, there's no reason to avoid it whatsoever. Because you, with all of these things, excessive amounts, it's so, it's yeah. just so extreme. All of it. I mean, who, I mean, I love, I love peppers. Am I going to eat a hundred pounds of peppers? I'm not, no, I would probably die before I get to the alkaloid con- component because I would burst, you know, <laughs> like I, it's just, it's so, it's so wild. But I think that this is one that is so pervasive in, um, at like in our world in the health industry and, um, I think that so many people are undercutting their antioxidant potential because they're not willing to have nightshades because so-and-so said on, you know, on TV or on a blog or whatever, they're bad. And they just don't know how to do the research. But I am telling you right now, there's no research that says that you should be avoiding them because they cause inflammation. None. Zero. None. Yeah. Yeah. Not to, I'm not also don't want to discount, uh, food sensitivities, food allergies, those types of things either. I mean, that's totally a different thing, but this fear mongering that happens with certain types of foods, uh, is just, it's, you know, and it's like broken telephone, you know, Uh, and then one person, especially with a lot of influencers out there, they take this one little piece and then they go with it. And, you know, next thing you know, people are afraid to eat nuts. They're afraid to eat, you know, fruits. They're afraid to eat their cruciferous vegetables and, you know, their night, all of that. When in reality, most of these cases are are studied under extreme circumstances, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and, and also to your point of, I mean, there are listeners who are listening, who have never done our program before. I still think it's a very valuable conversation for everyone listening, but you know, we do have to take a minute for our listeners who are in maintenance, who have done all these other things to be as healthy as possible. They have strong immune systems and digestive systems. And they are in tune to their body's needs. Like maybe it's not the potatoes that you're eating or the, the peppers that you're eating. It's the wine that you drank the night before with it, you know, or the sleep that you got or not got, which brings us to the last point. You can catch up on sleep on the weekends. I, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty tired. I wish to, but I, <laughs> You can't. Um, honestly, this is we we actually thought for a while that you could. Um, and the the biggest study that we have on the subject says that you actually can't. Um, and, and the hardest thing about this part is that you know, and I see this very often in practice where 
you shortchange your sleep. And then on Saturday and Sunday, you sleep until noon. And then come Sunday night, you're not tired at like yeah. nine or 10 o'clock when you should be going to bed, but you still have to wake up at five o'clock in the morning the next day. And so then because you're not tired, then you actually are just, it's almost like you just keep on moving your bedtime, right? And so that Sunday night, you end up having maybe three to four hours of sleep. Then you feel the worst on Monday. And then it takes you like Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday to really catch up. And then by Friday, we're doing the cycle all over again. And so I am, you know, uh, Dr. Matthew Walker is probably the biggest sleep scientist or researcher right now. And he's an amazing, amazing book that I always refer back to. But um, one of the, the key concepts that he talks about all the time is like the most important thing for your sleep is keeping a regular waking time, right? Like the sleep, like sometimes we can't control what time you go to bed, but you have to wake up at the same time every single day because otherwise that ends up being torture on your biology and your circadian rhythm because you're constantly doing this and your body doesn't know what to expect. And so if you, for example, go to bed really late one day, but then you still wake up at that regular time that next morning, that night, you'll be able to fall asleep at the time that you were supposed to, and then almost like catch up that day. No Whereas if you can't, that. you're constantly, no, 100%. I, I'm like 40 and I just started doing it. I'm like, oh my God, this is life changing. And it is, it honestly is life changing, but it's like, it's otherwise like you're constantly like tired and you're never catching up and you always have this like, sleep deficit. It's awful. Okay. We got the same time every day. I'm going to do that. Because I don't, even just based on, okay, Tony's going to take the kids today, so I get to sleep in a little extra long, or maybe I'll work out this morning, maybe I won't. Like, I'm changing the time I get up all the time. Okay, I'm going to I'm gonna take that advice. It's, honestly, it's, it's one of the things that, I mean, that in not drinking alcohol, I, I, I wish that I could say not drinking alcohol, period, but not drinking alcohol too close to that time because I changed it based on uh, Dr. Uh, Walker's recommendations. If I drink alcohol, I try to drink it at least four hours before bed to try and, yeah. you know, allow my body to metabolize it a little bit at least. Um, that in the regular waking time has completely changed my life, completely. So okay. that and the no knuckle good. cracking for you, that's going to change your life. <laughs> Watch out, Tony. Our grip strength is coming back. <laughs> no, 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 go cracking. Okay. So I fucked it all up. So today's a new day. Today's a, today's new, day. a new day. We start fresh today. <laughs> oh my gosh, Dr. Linka, um, where can people find you? Because they're going to ask. Uh, health and physiotherapy in Burlington. Um, if you just Google it, uh, uh, you'll be able to find me. As you know, I never have social media or a website. I promise that I will every time and then I never do. And so just Google me, you guys, you'll be able to find me and on your podcast and at your Facebook Live. I love it. I love you. And I, we are lucky to have you in whatever capacity. So um, thank you. Thank you. This, I lo let's do this more often because I'm, I'm sure there's like a, there's a much bigger list than this list. Oh, so many. <laughs> Yeah, we can get through, like people can like submit them and we can do this. Oh my God, this is like the best. I love this. I love this. Okay. This is conversations I have We're all the time. It. Anyway, <laughs> thank you so much for having me. Have a great day. <laughs> Thanks for joining me. Thanks everyone for watching and listening. Have a good day. Bye everyone. Bye.